Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS On Air, where we are discussing the March 2023 edition of Fertility and Sterility. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordaletto, and as always, I'm joined by Dr. Kurt Barnhart and Dr. Eve Feinberg. Kurt and Eve, how are you, too? Wonderful. Nice to see you guys. Ready to roll up my sleeves and dive into some science. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Um, good morning, everyone. In this issue of FNS, we have a really wonderful views and reviews that we're not going to be talking on the podcast specifically, but I want to point everyone's direction to. Um, it's a unique set of articles looking at racial and ethnic disparities in ART. There's a systematic review. There's looking at racial and ethnic disparities in PCOS, fibroids, endometriosis, and ending with a mental health article. I think that's a really outstanding views and reviews led by Dr. Anuja Dokras that I just want to point everyone towards in the March 2023 edition. We have a lot of good science to talk about today. I think, Eve, again, you probably stole the seminal contribution from Kurt, but this is a really good article. This is looking at the effect of COVID-19 vaccination on menstrual cycle changes. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Thanks, Pietro. And yes, as the person who assigns the articles, I definitely stole this article from Kurt. <laughs> I read this study with a lot of interest. I will tell you that so many patients, friends, family, and even my hairstylist have told me that they experienced changes to their menstrual cycle after the COVID vaccine. The study was done as a larger part of a COVID study, the Arizona COVID-19 cohort study, or COVIHORT. The study began in May 2020, and its primary objective was to better understand COVID-19 risk factors, as well as the short-term and long-term sequelae associated with infection. Individuals were recruited with and without a history of COVID-19 in the state of Arizona. In May of 2021, a reproductive health sub-study was launched, which recruited COVIHORT study participants of reproductive age who were menstruating and who received two doses of Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or one dose of Janssen. Self-described pregnant, perimenopausal, or postmenopausal women were excluded. And the objective of this sub-study was to describe characteristics of people who experience changes to their menstrual cycle following COVID-19 vaccination. And there were 545 participants who completed the baseline study and a little bit of dropout from there between the baseline, the three-month, and the six-month questionnaires. Participants were asked detailed questions about demographics, reproductive health history, self-reported stress, COVID-19 vaccination status, and changes to their menstrual cycle following vaccination. They were specifically asked about differences in cycle length, missed periods, menstrual periods occurring in intervals greater than 35 days, abnormal flow, bleeding or spotting between periods, or prolonged heavy bleeding, increase in pain or cramps, or an increase in PMS. Participants were also asked whether they noticed changes after dose one, dose two, or booster if received, and whether and when the changes had resolved. So I would argue very comprehensive, though self-reported. Demographics and reproductive characteristics were examined as predictors of menstrual cycle changes. 
And interestingly, and this is where this differs from some previous studies, the authors found that 25%, 24.8% of participants reported having experienced changes to their menstrual cycle following vaccination. And among the participants who experienced changes, the majority report of these differences were following the second dose compared to the first and third dose. However, and not surprising, the majority reported resolution within two months of vaccination. 43% of women reported irregular menstruation, and 34% reported an increase in PMS symptoms. 30% reported increase in cramping, and 31% reported abnormally heavy or prolonged bleeding. There were no demographic differences between these groups for those who did and did not report changes to their menstrual cycle. Participants who had a higher BMI and reported higher perceived stress also had greater odds of reporting changes to their menstrual cycle. And I think that's an important point. Patients who had a history of COVID-19 infection were less likely to report changes to their menstrual cycle after vaccination compared to participants who did not. So I think overall, the findings are reassuring. For the 25% of patients that reported menstrual changes, these resolved in the following months. The authors have a nice discussion of proposed mechanism of action of how vaccination might change the menstrual cycle, including through acute phase immune response, inflammation, endogenous hormone changes, and immune cells in the endometrium. I think this is a nice study. I commend the authors on their work. But I think that my biggest criticism, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, is that this is self-reported and based on recall and has a lot of potential for bias. And I think it's also in contrast to larger scale studies that we're using trackers, such as the Apple Watch, that may capture a more accurate picture of menstrual cyclicity. Kurt, Pietro, what do you think? Yeah, I think this goes onto the, the column of an interesting finding, thought-provoking, but it's hard to know that it's proven. My biggest concern on this is, you know, does perhaps in many other acute illnesses or vaccines, menstrual cycle changes, and we just didn't know it. I mean, we know menstrual cycles change by, you know, lots of things I learned in medical school, with, you know, women living together, stress, <laughs> stress uh, dating, pheromones. So I think this is a neat finding. I just not really sure what to do with it in the in terms of the general health. Yeah. And I don't want to minimize it, but I'm like, okay, so your cycle changed a little bit. Like, I don't think that there are long-term implications of a few days here or there of a period being altered, but maybe but, I'm blase about it. But I think the problem is that there's people who are extrapolating this menstrual change to mean this is impacting your fertility. This is changing our ability to conceive it's a really slippery slope. You see this on Twitter all the time. Oh my gosh, COVID vaccine changes menstrual periods. Menstrual periods need to be normal for you to conceive. Therefore, people cannot conceive if they receive the COVID-19 vaccine. It's a really slippery slope. And I think all this paper tells us is that when patients were asked about their menstrual periods after COVID vaccine, about a quarter of them reported a change with all the inherent biases of recall um, and that Eve mentioned. We can't extrapolate this any further. We can't let, I think, the media, the, the the social media sphere run wild with this and say that we're making women infertile or changing their ability to conceive uh, based on a two-month swing of a period being a little bit more irregular and then returning to baseline. In women who reported high levels of stress, <laughs> with that caveat. So, yeah. So, I think interesting and hopefully as the COVID-19 pandemic is further and further in the rearview mirror, this will be less talked about. 
And it is fun to discuss because we can, can have a little bit of conjecture here and there. But if you really want to know more scientific information about how COVID affects reproduction and pregnancy rates and simulations, there are more articles coming out in FNS about this, including meta-analysis. So we should be paying attention. I'm glad this article sleep the light of day, but you know, please just don't take one piece of information and run with it to support your belief. Pivoting away from stuff that we've talked a lot about in the last two years, I want to bring up back something that we haven't talked about in a while, which is opioid prescribing and risk of persistence opioid use disorder. I feel like there was a period of time about five years ago where this was all of the rage and you were hearing a lot about it and then it kind of got taken over by COVID, probably rightfully so. But this is a study from Dr. Corey Abel from UT Galveston and senior author Taylor Cohn from Johns Hopkins that sought to look at male patients who are undergoing male fertility procedures to see if there's a relationship between opioid prescribing postoperatively and the incidence of long-term opioid dependence. To do this, what they did is they looked at U.S. claims data from a database called Trinex Diamond Network, which is about 212 million patients across 92 health organizations across 1.8 million different healthcare sites. So a really nice national sample of claims data. And they specifically looked at men between the ages of 18 and 70 who had undergone just a select group of procedures. Open varicocele excision, laparoscopic varicocele ligation, epididymovasotomy, vasovasotomy, vasectomy or an excision of a spermatocele. Unfortunately, the stuff that's intimately related to what we do as female infertility specialists like TESA, MESA, PESA, and TESI were unable to be looked at because they all share an unlisted CPT code. So they were unable to sort out which one was which and unfortunately were not able to include it in the study. They also excluded men with a prior diagnosis of opioid use disorder or men who had received an opioid prescription within the year before their index surgery just for the cleanliness of the data that they were trying to look at. And their primary outcome of interest was really new persistent opioid use following surgery between that first three to nine month period postoperatively. They used propensity score matching, which we've talked a lot about, and they matched on age, race, and ethnicity, smoking status, and then the host of things that are associated with opioid use disorders, concurrent mental health diagnosis, behavior disorders, and other pain disorders, such as a, a diagnosis of back, neck, chronic pain. Their control group here was a, was nifty. I think it was, a, it was a nice way to kind of have a group of men that was hopefully similar in characteristics, but opioid naive. And they looked at men who had presented for fertility care, but did not undergo any surgical procedure. In total, they had about 387,000 men who had met eligibility criteria. The most common procedure, you guessed it, was vasectomy. 92% of those men had undergone vasectomy, followed by spermatocele excision and open varicocele repair. In total, a quarter of these men received an opioid prescription after their male fertility procedure. Spermatocele excision was the most common procedure receiving an opioid. In total, across all of these fertility procedures, 4.5% of men who received a perioperative opioid prescription developed a new persistent opioid use disorder, compared to 2.2% in the control group. This amounted to a risk ratio of 2.16, and if you're doing the math in your head like I'm sure Kurt and Mike and Eve are, this is a number needed to harm of 39 men. Now, this number is similar to what we're seeing with what other minor procedures, such as varicose vein surgery, lap coli, lap api, carpal tunnel surgery. But I think the context here is important. I think there's a very nice point raised in the discussion. Take vasectomy, for example. When we're talking about risks of surgery, failure rate's less than 1%. Symptomatic hematoma or infection rate is 1% to 2%. Chronic scrotal pain is 1% to 2%. But now, risk of having a persistent opioid use disorder is your biggest risk. After the surgery, 4.7% of men who get an opioid prescription developed a persistent opioid problem. 
So the question is, should urologists be counseling men that are, their biggest risk from a vasectomy is developing an opioid problem? I mean, sure, you could, but probably the biggest thing that we need to just redouble our efforts on, and I feel like we talked a lot about five years ago, is really utilizing multimodal analgesia, blocks, non-pharmacologic pain therapies, mindfulness, acupuncture, enhanced recovery pathways to get rid of that 25% of men who are still receiving an opioid postoperatively. If the vast majority don't need it, probably means that that 25% is still a little overblown and we could realistically get that number lower with just a little bit more attention. The flip side to this is women receiving opioid prescription after an egg retrieval. I published on this multiple years ago when people were looking at opioid use disorder, and about 12% of patients who were given a prescription actually filled it. And most commonly, it was women with mood disorders, tobacco use, antidepressant use. So I think the, the, what we're seeing in comparison to our female procedures, these men, about a quarter are getting a prescription and filling it. About 4% are having a persistent opioid use disorder, which is not nothing when you think about the scale of this, how many men have vasectomies each year in the United States and that growing number, particularly in this post-row era that we've talked about in FNS. Kurt, Eve... What do you do with this data? I know we don't take care of men patients, male patients primarily, but how do you, how do you, how do you talk to this about patients and with your male fertility specialist? You know, I thought this was a really interesting and novel paper. My criticism, and I think it's more of a question actually, is how comprehensive is this database and what is the ability of the database to track opioid prescriptions that might have been given prior to initiation of care in this one particular health system. And so I I think it's really interesting. I think it's really scary. I commend the authors for thinking about this, but I really wonder whether or not these data are actually accurate. We don't have a national registry. We don't know health system to health system, whether or not these EMRs communicate in order to track these data. And so I think I have a healthy degree of skepticism in terms of the ability to track these prescriptions through time and place. But if I put that aside, I think that it is something that we need to pay attention to. The other part of it, I will say, is I think that the pendulum has swung too far. As somebody who had a C-section of twins and was not given you know, any pain relief, I think we need to pay attention to pain. And I, I do worry that sometimes we're under-treating pain as opposed to trying to stamp out the opioid epidemic. So you think the four and a half percent is underreported? You think the number is actually higher based on kind of the issues that you point out with claims database problems, or do you think that number is overblown? Yeah, I'm not sure because it's possible that it's underreported and we're not seeing other opioid prescriptions that are after this time that the authors chose to look, or it's possible one of the methods that they looked at was patients who were naive to opioid prescriptions in the past, and it's entirely possible that they were naive to opioid prescriptions in this particular health system database, but they had been on opioid prescriptions previously prior to engaging in one of those health systems. So I think we we just don't know, but I think that the theory of it is really interesting, and I think that it is something that we need to minimize and pay attention to. But I also think that the caveat is we can't under-treat pain. Pietro, a couple thoughts on this. First of all, I love how you snuck in post-Row post Wade into this. <laughs> that was some high-quality uh, 
spinning there. So um, sounds like something I would have done. <laughs> so um, I think, yeah, unlike my data-driven self, I think that I'm less worried whether this number is correct or not. I think the message here is we're probably over-treating for a relatively simple procedure. And what amazes me is not necessarily the prevalence or the numbers, is that I can't believe how strongly opioids was just involved in everything we did and how easily it was to give and how we're still giving it easily, even though it's in the news every single day. So Eve, you're right. Of course, there are people that need pain relief, but you know, the reflexive prescription or the I'll give it to you just in case, you know, it just has to stop. And we could debate whether a vasectomy is a minor procedure or not. Um, but uh, it sounds to me like when what we do, we shouldn't be giving opioids. And at least it brings into our front lawn to say that we are could be part of the problem as well. I always like seeing these claims database. Um, I know a lot of what we do on the female side is not amenable to claims database because our, our codes are small in number. There's not a lot of insurance coverage for what we've done. But whenever you see it, I think that's this, this is a nice application of it, looking at claims data on a national perspective for opioid prescribing. Um, and there's a nice track record of this in other parts of the literature. let's pivot away from opioids and go to something totally unrelated without a natural transition here that I can think of. Let's talk about sperm HPV infection and the risk of recurrent pregnancy loss. Well, the link here is we went from sectomy to sperm. So, you know, at least we're staying in the, the, the there same general area. So I, I have the privilege here of presenting a nice article. The title is Sperm Human Papilloma Infection and Risk of Idiopathic Recurrent Pregnancy Loss Insights from a Multicenter Case Control Study by Andrea Brusnelli is the first author and Nicolette de Simone is the senior author, and this is out of a group of hospitals in Italy. So uh, listen, recurrent pregnancy loss is a big topic. Um, we still see it a lot. We could argue whether it's 1% to 3% or 2 to 4%, but it occupies our practice and it's a, a very difficult disease. And we really don't know the etiology for most cases, maybe 60 or maybe even more percent of cases. What we do know about it is that, at least on the, on the female side, that it's probably related to number of losses, it's related to age, probably karyotype analysis, but there's an emerging literature on male contributions to miscarriage, and in this case, recurrent miscarriage. So what's, how, what's the strength of that literature? First of all, an association with semen parameters in miscarriage is kind of not so clear. We're not really sure which parameter it is. There perhaps is a better strength literature with DNA fragmentation, although that has some pros and cons too. But this is a whole new angle, which is what's interesting. It's talking about sexually transmitted disease or HPV in this case. So there's some evidence that HPV can affect fertility in women, although it's not really strong. But there is some evidence supporting this hypothesis that HPV infection can change sperm parameters in men, morphology and, and motility. There is a meta-analysis that said that HPV infection decreases male fecundity by about twofold and may be associated with miscarriage. So that was a long-winded explanation to say, wow, we're looking at something new here, and does HPV infection have anything to do with recurrent miscarriage? So this is a case control study where they took women that had recurrent miscarriage by appropriate definitions of two or more losses, and they compared them to women that were had neither a history of miscarriage nor a history of infertility and looked back at whether they had HPV on the male side. So classic case control study, start with the case, whether you had recurrent miscarriage or not, and go back and to see whether you had HPV or not. And they found significant associations. The associations are um, basically odds ratios of 7.5 or even almost 9, depending on which model they use. That should get your attention. That's a, that's a realistic and strong association. Now, there's some really nice strengths to this paper in that that they, quote unquote, matched women by age. I just want to 
put my geek hat on for a second, that didn't mean that I actually matched them one for one and analyzed them together. That's a very different analysis. They did something called frequency matching just to make sure that the populations were not that dissimilar. But then you can also control for age in your analysis. They also had a very strong sample size, expecting something. They had very clear primary and secondary outcomes. They used two models, all really great stuff. The weaknesses are essentially that it's a case control study, that you still have some bias in how you collected your cases and your controls. And most importantly, you really can't tell prevalence. So even though the association is very strong here, if you actually look at the data, the actual number of people that had HPV was relatively small. Again, you can't give population prevalences, but in the people that had recurrent pregnancy loss, the number of people that had HPV was only 20%. So even if this was a very strong association, it's only in one in five people. So while this leads me to have a new thought process about what else could be affecting pregnancy loss. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be the magic bullet that says this is the cause, but fun to have studied like this where it's thought provoking. And I'd love to hear your guys' opinion on it as well. I thought it was intriguing. It's something that admittedly had never crossed my mind before as a potential etiology of RPL. What I thought was also really interesting, and I don't know exactly how they assessed in the female patient whether or not there was HPV. It didn't dive into that as much. They talked a lot about how they assessed the sperm for the presence of HPV, but all they mentioned in the female partner was like negative. And I'm not sure how far back they went to different pap smears or whether they did any other analysis. So again, a little skepticism there, but I think it's it's interesting. I mean, euploid pregnancy loss is obviously something that we really struggle to understand. Like if the chromosomes are normal, what else could it possibly be? And I think this plants the seed to think about viruses and other non-chromosomal etiologies that may cause RPL. So I, I thought it was fascinating. I love to think about things that had not previously been described. Although, again, I, I'm not going to start testing all of my male patients for the presence of high-risk HPV subtypes. I thought one of the really intriguing parts was the reflection that came along with it. I was thinking, all right, another association, another epidemiologic finding, what's the big deal? And then I read the incline and they taught me something I didn't think of. They basically said, what about HPV vaccines for men? If this is even associated or any way causally linked, why we could avoid this. And that made me think that this is even more intriguing that we already have a treatment available that we could widen the use of the HPV vaccine. Yeah. And it's recommended. It's in the United States. It's recommended for men and women beginning at age 18 to receive the HPV vaccine. Problem is uptake in the United States. Over 65% of women will receive the HPV vaccine, but the number for men share the same recommendation is less than 30%. So I'd be curious to see if there is a discrepancy in vaccinated status versus unvaccinated status and the presence or absence of the high risk and low risk HPV subtypes. And if that modulates any of the association that we saw here in this study, obviously you need a lot bigger numbers to be able to, to get there, but I think it's an interesting point. You're right. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was actually at a party this past weekend with the CEO of Publicis, which is a large media agency. And he was just talking very openly at the party about his head and neck cancer caused by HPV and saying how we have to get HPV and talk of HPV into the mainstream media and into everyday conversation. And so he has done some work with Michael Douglas on this effect and talking really about universal vaccination and how I agree. I think that in the US especially, it's so taboo to talk about HPV in men and head and neck cancers. It really speaks to the idea of universal vaccination on so many different levels. And I thought that was, I too thought that was a really interesting twist and shout out to Josh Halpern from Northwestern for writing that. 
in the interest of public health, I got my first dose of HPV vaccine right as I turned 26. The guidelines say to get it starting as early as age 11 or 12 and as late as 26. I got mine in OB clinic as a resident because I didn't want to miss the boat. Um, so if you're listening to this, you're a male who has not yet gotten the HPV vaccine. No better time than the present. All right, let's do another hard pivot. We're going to go away now from sperm HPV infection and towards uterine niches, which is a topic that I think we've talked a lot about. Call them uterine niches, isthmuscles, C-section scar defects, whatever you want. But boy, are we seeing a lot of them these days and having to counsel about patients on their impact uh, during their IVF cycle. The European Niche Task Force, there's a group that you probably didn't know existed, defines a niche as an indentation at the site of the C-section with a depth of at least two millimeters. So here's a working definition. Not every scar is a niche. You need to have that indentation at the level of the scar for it to start to qualify as a niche. And it's estimated that one in every four women with a history of C-section will have evidence of a niche on a 2D ultrasound, but that number will increase as high as 50% if using 3D ultrasound for the evaluation of women. The authors of this study from China sought to report on their single institutional experience from Wuhan, China, in 179 women who had a cesarean scar niche using this definition and compared them to 2,336 women without a niche who were undergoing IVF with embryo transfer. And their primary outcome was looking at live birth rate per cycle, and secondary outcomes were implantation, clinical pregnancy, and pregnancy loss rates. And what they found compared to women without a niche, those women with an ultrasound-diagnosed niche had a significantly lower implantation, clinical pregnancy, and live birth rate, while the miscarriage rates were significantly higher in those with a niche, 32 versus 18%. These same findings persisted after, again, they used propensity score matching, as well as, as, well as in subgroup analyses of women undergoing their first IVF cycle compared to their second or third, single embryo compared to double embryo transfer. There was one important subgroup that's interesting to point out here. There was no association between the depth of the niche and pregnancy outcomes. So having a three millimeter niche was not any better or worse than having an eight millimeter niche. And the mean niche depth in this study was seven and a half millimeters, but with a standard deviation of 8.5, for whatever it's worth. Now, the next question you may be asking yourself, what's the biologic plausibility for this association? There's a lot of hypotheses out there, not a lot of good data. Some have suggested that this accumulated intrauterine fluid may impact the sperm's ability to penetrate an egg and fertilize, may in and of itself be embryotoxic, like we've known for hydrosalpinges, and may negatively impact the endometrial milieu in a way that negatively impacts implantation. There's also been some histologic studies that have demonstrated impaired vascularization within and around the niche, as well as an abnormal immune cell profile compared to the normal endometrium around a niche. Some have even suggested that this is related to endometrial contractility, dispelling embryos. The waves of contractility within the myometrium cannot propagate normally, therefore they're more likely to dispel embryos or even just making it harder to get an embryo into the uterus at the time of embryo transfer by nature of getting hung up on this niche and stirring up bleeding or contractions. Like I said, lots of hypotheses, nothing that's super unifying or grounded in a ton of basic science research, but I think definitely something that we're all struggling with. Importantly, the study doesn't answer two big questions I have when it comes to counseling. Does repairing them actually modify any of these outcomes? Are we making anything better by tackling these hysteroscopically or laparoscopically? I think that question is still a, a, a big unknown. And then two, if it does, who are the patients that stand to benefit the most? And which approach is optimal for improving these outcomes? So these are the studies I'm hoping to see. I think there's enough retrospective small case series data now that suggests that probably in some patients there is a negative impact, not necessarily all. But if so, who are those patients and what do we do about it? 
Kurt, Eve, how do you counsel patients on cesarean scar niches? I know I have kind of my preferred counseling strategy as someone who operates on the niches, but I'm curious to see what you two guys think and share with your patients. It's a great question. And I think that usually I will make a note that it's present. And if there's fluid, so if this is a patient who's undergoing ART and who has persistent fluid in the endometrial cavity, that's generally when I recommend repair. I really question, (laughs) I don't mean to be the skeptic today, but a two millimeter quote niche, isn't that just a visible C-section scar that we can see at the time we look on ultrasound with 2D ultrasound in the sagittal view. Like, I'm not certain that a two millimeter indentation is really clinically significant. But I think where that isthmusial is really prominent, where we see a lot of fluid that collects within the scar, certainly in patients where we have abnormal uterine bleeding from the isthmusial or persistence of fluid in the endometrial cavity, those are patients that I counsel on repair. I don't know the right answer here. I recently saw a patient who had a giant isthmusial and prior to even trying a frozen embryo transfer, this is somebody who went through three or four IVF cycles to bank embryos, got pregnant on her first FET, had a live birth, has three euploid embryos left, and she's 43. And that's probably her only three embryos that she has left. I had counseled her given the enormous size of her niche or her isthmusial to have surgery a priority prior to going through FETs. But in a lot of patients, I'll try a mock cycle. I'll see what happens. I'll see whether or not the fluid disappears. Oftentimes, I find that the fluid is worse on an estrogen-primed cycle as opposed to a natural cycle or a letrozole cycle. A lot of times, I'll try different things and see whether or not the fluid resolves on its own. And if it doesn't resolve, those are the rare cases where I recommend surgery, but I don't recommend surgery very frequently. I tend to be relatively hands-off with this. Uh, I mean, this is this is great data. I can't believe that one center has a, has this many cases that we can look at. But again, recognize this is a, a loose association. And I think we all know that a C-section might have more dramatic effect on reproduction than we think that it does. But but you also have to think how many people have C-sections. So I think that I don't want to find something just so I can fix it. So I'm relatively hands-off. The tricky part that I've debated now with MFMs a lot is the placenta accretive spectrum disorder risk with a cesarean scar, with a cesarean scar defect now that we make a, a, a diagnosis using whatever definition you use, and is a repair, revision, laparoscopically, open, hysteroscopically, is that going to improve clinical outcomes? Yes or no? We don't know yet. I think there's a lot of equipoise there. But number two, what does it do in terms of risk reduction or risk magnification for placenta creta spectrum disorders? I think the MFMs who deal with placenta creta know that cesarean scars are bad. They're, they're not good for abnormal or invasive placentation. And is our attempt at shaving with hysteroscope or primary repair from above going to make things better or worse. I think that's a a big, big unknown that we may actually be causing more harm than good. That's a nice point. I'm going to make a shout out to my longtime partner who retired last week, Stephen Sondheimer, who taught me that sometimes it's easier to be a surgeon than a tailor because the body does try to heal itself. So um, the message there is sometimes you might find something that's not perfect, but fixing it doesn't make it better. Well said. I can't think of a better comment to, to end that discussion with. Kurt, we're going to go back to you, and we're going to talk about a paper that I was actually involved in, looking at anti-malarian hormone levels and embryoploidy status in patients undergoing PGT. 
I'm going to start this discussion with a quote that I thought was terrific out of the reflection for this paper out of Bradley Hurst. Let me so read it, and I think it frames the question. Imagine a blood test so powerful that it can predict an individual's ability to successfully complete meiosis and, if fertilized, result in a euploid embryo. It seems incredible to think that a test could predict the orderly or disorderly movement of chromosomes during um, completion of oocyte meiosis. However, for those that believe that AMH to indicate the quality and quantity of oocytes retrieved during ovarian simulation, this notion is actually accepted. This quote really reflects a debate that's been going on in our field for a long time. We have the luxury of a biomarker, AMH, that is clearly associated with the number of oocytes you have. And remember, it's a glycoprotein secreted by the granulosa cells surrounding the eggs. And we've noticed that it's clearly associated with the number of eggs we get in retrieval. But we really, really want that biomarker to be extrapolated to be able to predict everything for us, whether you're going to get pregnant, whether you're going to have a normal baby, whether the baby's going to go to college. Um, it's just, you know, sometimes we're relying too heavily on this. So this paper that you are a part of, Pietro, is is wonderful in that it very clearly tries to address this problem of quantity versus quality. The actual title of the paper, Anti-Malarian Hormone is Not Associated with Embryoploidy in Patients with and Without Infertility Undergoing In Vitro Fertilization with Preamplant Genetic Testing, um, again, is out of Cornell. The first author is a medical student, Yael Stavetsky, uh, and the senior author is Steven Spandorfer. And of course, our own Pietro is on the paper as well. So the objective is to assess the association between anti-malarian hormone and embryoploidy, and they use two cohorts. They use a cohort of people that had PGTA because that was part of their infertility workup. Um, that was part of their um, chosen infertility treatment. Uh, and they also looked at people that had PGTM or um, biopsy for single gene mutations and stratified them based on high and low AMH. They used a relatively standard by the Bologna criteria of 1.1 and basically looked to see, did you find differences in aneuploidy rates? Essentially, it's two analyses. It's comparing those with high and low AMH in both the, quote, fertile group and the infertile group. And there's two outcomes, which is, did they make the same number of embryos? And then the second analysis is, of the embryos you made, what was the rate that were normal versus abnormal? So nice, clean, elegant analysis. Um, I I'm going to go through some of the data, just give you some of my observations. First of all, there clearly are differences in the demographics of patients that have a high and low AMH. Although they kept this to young women under 40, um, there clearly is differences in age. There's actually surprisingly a difference in BMI, although I'm not really sure what that's about. And there's clearly differences in the way they simulate them. By the way, these differences are pretty much the same, whether they're in the, quote, infertile group or fertile group. And it looks like the simulation parameters are really based on your AMH. They're really not different if you're fertile or infertile. The meat of the matter is, is, is the table two, which clearly demonstrates in a nice way, you should look at this, it's put out, that there's no question that if you have a higher AMH, you are getting almost two times as many blastocysts and you're ending up with two times as many eupoid blastocysts. However, if you dig down to the specific blastocysts, in other words, the, if you have a blastocyst and you do a biopsy, what's the likelihood that it's normal or abnormal? That seems to be about the same. Now, there's some statistical noise here. The odds ratios are a little above one or a little below one, but but uniformly in the overall groups in stratified by age and stratified by quartile, there's pretty much the same euploid rate that you would expect. Yes, the euploid rate is higher if you're young and lower if you're old, but within those age strata, the percentage of euploid and aneuploid blastocysts is about the same. If you really wanted to pick it out, 
looks like maybe there's you know a slight difference in the fertile group where you do get an odds ratio that's approaching statistical significance but you know there's lots of analyses here and I don't want to dig into the weeds I think that the question is is pretty good hence going back to the um, reflection by Brad Hurst entitled the nail in the coffin and he ends his reflection with simple words that says a young woman with a low AMH does not have bad eggs. I think this paper was really well done, and I'm so impressed that it was done by a medical student who's the first author. So congratulations to her. I agree. And I think that this has been demonstrated again and again and again that age is the single most important prognostic factor. And I think it's very much in line with how I counsel patients in terms of, you know, you may have a reduced quantity, but quality is determined by age. And I always say age is king. (laughs) age is queen. And that's really all you need to know. Looking at what might the naysayer say, AMH, once again, was we talked about this in a prior Cornell paper, but AMH was binary, like less than 1.1 or greater than 1.1. And I think I really commend the authors on doing a sensitivity analysis and looking at the different quartiles of AMH. However, you didn't look at the lower quartiles of AMH, like the 0.5 um, 0.1 and the, you know, the the really ultra low AMH to see whether or not there may be a difference. And I suspect that there would not be, but I think it would have been really interesting to hammer those out and really put the nail in the coffin there. Yeah, we, we thought about doing that. The problem was that the numbers become so small at that AMH. Well, I think that those patients, those patients don't make blastocysts, right? And especially at Cornell, they're getting fresh day three transfers and not typically recommended to undergo PGTA except in exceptional circumstances. Yeah, but I think that somewhere, and maybe someone listening to the podcast will have the numbers to really look at that and show that even in you know the ultra-low AMH patients that we're not seeing increases in aneuploidy rates. But that was my only thing that I really would have loved to see in the paper, but understanding the limitations, that that's a really difficult subgroup to study because of its inherent limitation of low ovarian reserve and low blastulation rates and practice patterns at Cornell. Yeah, did you have any other insights on the conception or analysis of this paper you want to share with us? Yeah, the big thing was that we have Cornell, for whatever reason, felt, and I don't know that this is very different from any other fertility clinic, but we felt like we saw a lot of patients with very low AMHs at the extremes of age. And one of the primary questions they asked us was, does this mean that if I'm more likely to have genetically abnormal embryos, do I need to do PGTA to identify those embryos? Is something different about my biology? And we got so tired of the question that that's really where the idea came for the study. And what I want to make sure people understand is the take-home point of this is that AMH is a good biomarker for predicting ovarian response to stimulation. That's it. I think there's no shortage of papers in FNS, in human reproduction from that have talked about AMH not being useful for natural fecundability, not being useful to predict Employee status of embryos, miscarriage rates. I think we we have to pare down what we're using AMH for and really have to, I think, re-educate OBGYN's patients and ourselves that AMH only clues you into how much meds you're going to need to use during an IVF cycle. But that's kind of what kills me a little bit about direct-to-consumer AMH testing. So you have direct-to-consumer AMH testing that, first of all, falsely advertises itself as a fertility test. But second, you're trying to identify those patients who have low ovarian reserve, and then you tell them that the answer is freeze your eggs, where those patients aren't going to respond well. And so you get caught up in this circuit of 
why are we testing this? We're testing it to see if you have low reserve. Then we're saying, go ahead and freeze your eggs. But those women aren't going to do well and are going to require multiple, multiple rounds where we know that if those women were to try to conceive now or potentially a few years in the future, we're not seeing decreases in the likelihood of conception with low ovarian reserve. It simply predicts what is one's response to gonadotropins. I think there's another message in here too, if I can extrapolate the data, and Pietro kind of said it, is that can we please stop biopsying all embryos because there's a, a scant few in someone with that's young with uh, a, a low AMH. These embryos are normal and biopsying an embryo is not going to make it more likely to be normal, nor is it in, in any way helping the pregnancy rates. So this gives us confidence that, you, again, if you have a young woman, regardless of AMH, she's going to have good embryos, leave them alone. Well said. And that's my favorite patient to take care of. The young patient with a low AMH, you really have a lot of options because at the end of the day, like Eve said, age is queen and she's got that going for her. Eve, why don't you round out today's podcast and tell us a little bit about something very different from AMH. Tell us a little bit about disease-free survival in young women undergoing fertility preservation with breast cancer. This is also another really nicely done study with first author Charlotte Sinaigo and senior author Michael Grinberg from France. And the objective of this study was to evaluate whether fertility preservation strategies using ovarian stimulation impact long-term disease-free survival of breast cancer patients. So this was a retrospective cohort study. They included all patients with a diagnosis of breast cancer at two university hospitals who were referred to their fertility preservation program. And there were 740 included patients that were divided into two groups. So one group was called the STEM group and the other was called the no-STEM group. The STEM group underwent at least one ovarian stimulation cycle and they used random start antagonist protocols with varying doses of FSH. Letrozole was used as co-treatment in some patients, but not all and typically used in those patients who were ER or PR positive. The no-STEM group also underwent oocyte retrieval, followed by in vitro maturation or ovarian tissue cryopreservation, but they did not use exogenous FSH for IVM. So these were patients who underwent fertility preservation procedures, but without gonadotropins. Information on recurrence was collected from annual follow-up visits or extracted from the medical records, and deaths were identified from the medical record and also from obituaries. Women in the STEM group were older and had worse ovarian reserve compared to women in the no-STEM group, but there were no differences between groups in hormone-positive or triple-negative cancers or those who had BRCA mutations. Kaplan-Meier estimates of disease-free survival at four years was not statistically significant between the two groups, and the STEM group had an 88% disease-free survival compared to an 83% in the no-STEM group. Overall survival at four years was higher in the STEM group, 97.6% compared to 93.6% in the no-STEM group. So just to reiterate, they looked at four-year disease-free survival, and they saw that the patients who were on gonadotropins plus minus latrozole in some patients actually did slightly better, although not statistically significantly so. Overall, I think this is a nice study, and it adds to the existing literature about the safety of ovarian stimulation in the setting of breast cancer. However, I think there are two things worth mentioning and discussing. First and foremost, the duration of follow-up is only four years. 
So I think we can say in the short term, ovarian stimulation does not cause harm or increase the risk of recurrence. And I think these are important data. Biologically, I would anticipate that if estrogen were to cause a tumor to grow, the effect would in fact be seen in the short term. However, I'd like to see another follow-up study from the same group in another six years looking at a 10-year horizon. The second point is that there were not differences in the stimulation group between those who were on letrozole versus those who were not. I do question the use of letrozole with stimulation. Is this an emotional decision? I know I personally feel better when I have a patient on letrozole during stimulation and the estrogen levels are low, but I really have to question this practice and wonder, is it helping? Could letrozole be hurting? Do we get fewer eggs on those cycles, which some people have criticized? So again, I think a really nice study, I think it lends reassurance to the idea of stimulation prior to cancer treatment. And I think my bigger question is that of letrozole. Kurt, Pietro, what do you think? I think this is welcome data. I, I see a lot of oncofertility patients here at Boston IVF, and this is probably the number one, number two, and number three question that they have. If I do this, will it be safe? My priority now is to be alive and beat this cancer and then tackle my fertility. And I think this study, along with a study that just came out last month at JAMA that looked at stopping tamoxifen therapy for up to two years after being on it for um, a three-year period to conceive was actually safe. This was the positive study that came out in JAMA. And I think this is a growing amount of data to suggest that fertility preservation is safe. It's safe to become pregnant when you're in remission with breast cancer. And now it's just on us to really get the message out and redouble our efforts to make sure that fertility preservation is part of every young reproductive age man and woman's consultation when they're seeing an oncologist. There, there's a whole bunch of patients that need to be evangelized and hear this. And every patient that doesn't get to us is, I think, a missed opportunity to at least hear the counseling, not necessarily freeze eggs, freeze embryos, or bank sperm. I, I agree. And thank you for stating that the main message is that we don't have enough oncofertility patients, that people are not getting the message to think about fertility when they have the unfortunate diagnosis of cancer. But I, always, I also want to end the podcast and going back to what we said before about the, the, the niche C-section scar. There we found a problem and thought surgery was the way to fix it. Uh, in this case, it's the opposite. We made a paternalistic suggestion that we can't treat these people, which I'm not saying is wrong or right, but that, was a, you know, ev- that wasn't an evidence-based decision. And now we're slowly backing away from it. So this is, as you mentioned, a nice good piece of data to say we can stop doing perhaps what we thought was the best thing because we weren't necessarily right on our first guess. So well said as always, Kurt. Well, Kurt, even another great podcast episode. The conversation ends now, but continues online. You can follow us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I did also want to mention a very new special uh, change that's coming to fertility and sterility. A lot of you are familiar with FertStert Dialogue, a companion website to fertility and sterility that was started many years ago as a way to have an online discussion beyond the paper with your colleagues in the comments section to discuss articles that we were publishing at FNS. In addition to that content that existed in the journal, there was also original content called the Consider This Section, which is an opportunity for people to share original thoughts and ideas that didn't fit kind of the normal mold of a research article for fertility and sterility. Well, as our way of communicating and debating evolved with social media, we have now evolved the dialogue and the consider this section. Starting on March 1st, when you're probably already listening to this podcast, the fertility and sterility dialogue website is going to be sunsetted, but all of the original content that exists on there, consider this, will be archived and will be brought now to the main fertstert.org website. The new Consider This section will also be expanded to give you, the listeners, the authors of these papers, a greater opportunity to comment and discuss topics of interest in four new subsections. Consider this paper, 
an opportunity for people to talk about papers being published outside of fertility and sterility, but within the realm of reproductive medicine. Consider the ethics, an opportunity for you to wax poetic and really explore the ethical implications of the things that we're doing within our field. Consider the moment, an opportunity for you to talk about things that are happening in public discourse that are relevant to us as a profession. And finally, consider this idea, an opportunity for you to make a hypothesis, try to make an association, be thought-provoking and um, hypothesis-generating in your ideas and things that you've been seeing in clinical practice or in research. All of these articles are going to be hosted online on the main FNS webpage. They will be available for sharing on social media and will not live behind paywalls. And we're hoping that you, our listeners, submit articles to this section and that we can share those articles on your behalf broadly with all of our readers in FNS, but as well as our social media followers across our multiple platforms. Thanks, Pietro. I want to add to that, too, that consider this as a uniquely FNS publication. The fact that you can publish your thoughts online with huge exposure, sometimes these consider this gets thousands of views and are picked up the media, is wonderful. And it's something that I think you all should consider, pun intended. So please uh, hear this, share the information, and we look forward to seeing your submissions. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Kurt, Eve, as always, great to be with you. Micah, we look forward to having you on our next podcast. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Have a great day. Wonderful. Nice to done. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.